So it's a Tuesday. I got home from Thanksgiving travel uh, and went to bed at 9 o'clock on Sunday, so didn't even do a, a late night recording and um, didn't have it in me yesterday, which was Monday. So it's Tuesday at 6.30. We are going to start and finish Esther and then maybe cruise a little bit through Job. 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 Imagine. I, I'm sure you're all like, oh my God, do they know? Do they know that it's Job and not Job? Yes. Yes, I do. But that's all I know. Esther, chapter one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, uh, Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at but when the attendants delivered the king's command Queen Vashti refused to come <laughs> nice then the king became furious and burned with anger since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king Karshana, Shithar, Admatha uh, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the Lord, uh, <laughs> according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied, "I don't like Memukan. Memukan." Mabukhan replied to the presence, In the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who had had the queen's who had heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this, all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The kings and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memu Khan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done when he, what he, what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, "Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women." and let beauty treatments be given to them. 
Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew on the tribe of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadash, Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who is also known as Esther, was lovely in form and figures, features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Hester had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forgiven her, forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete twelve months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of murder, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there, and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazkaz. Shash, Shash, Shashkas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, and for all his nobles, for all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed girls' gifts with royal liberality. So what I'm hearing is that we need to set up a uh, Bible-focused version reality dating show that lasts an entire year, and whoever wins gets to marry someone important. When the virgins were assembled when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Oh, it's the third night of Hanukkah. Speaking of the Jews, happy Hanukkah to all my loyal listeners. Even if you're listening to this asynchronously, uh, happy Hanukkah anyway. 
When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai and said Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put ten thousand talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took a signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agite, Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's uh, satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, willing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent, she, uh, she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned um, Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach, I think it's Hathach, 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 yeah. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that he will be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days had passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you are alone of all the Jews who will escape. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, um, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. <laughs> uh, seeing that through sort of a contemporary lens of 
using your position of power to make a difference for your community. I sure hope it turns out okay for her, Esther. And another case of the uh, individual taking on the sins of a community. Well, not the sins in this case, but an individual taking on the responsibility of a community and choosing the life of the collective over the life of the individual. Impenance to God, I guess. Maybe. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out the day, went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I, I am the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows built seventy-five feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to them. It was found recorded that recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. His attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai in the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, or have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted Uh, entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Amon got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what it's this is this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai recur- returned to the king's gate, but Amon rushed home with his head covered in grief, and told Suresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and wife Suresh said to him, 
Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is one of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and enemy is the vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman realized that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace gardens to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the words, as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows seventy-five feet high stands by Haman's house. He made it for Mordecai, who spoke up, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. The same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and preserved it, presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Hester again pleaded with Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Ag Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Ag Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned, on the twenty-third day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent, and spent them, sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence, wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. 
and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews, because fear of the Jews had seized them. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. That's what it says. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed uh, Parshandatha, Delphon, Aspatha, Puratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaisatha. The ten sons of Haman, son of Hamidatha, 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 the enemy of the Jews, so they did not lay their hands on their plunder. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king the same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's promises? Now what is your your petition, it will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed seventy-five thousand of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Amon, son of Hamandatha the Agite, Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he had issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore these days were called Purim, from the word pure, because of everything written in this letter because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther 
daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. Purim. Purim? I think it's Purim. I think I just have a bad accent. Purim. Purim. I should ask. I, I, I know people who have the answer to this question. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim, Purim, Purim I'm second-guessing myself, at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regards to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, Purim and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire and to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." Um, hello, this book is literally called Esther, and the entire last chapter is about Mordecai. Um, hello, she is the one who walked in front of the king who could have murdered her and said, hi, this shit is happening. That sucks. (laughs) This was a really good one, a good story where the Jews triumph. And there's, well, there's a lot of murder that I don't feel great about, um, it's the last day of no nuance november so i'm gonna let the murder stand um assuming that these enemies of the jews were were rightfully identified um that sucks <laughs> mordecai the jew second in rank preeminent among the jews held in high esteem because he worked for the good of his people and spoke for the welfare of the jews so did esther girl never forget never gonna forget you so that ends esther chapter 10 and we turn the page and start on Job chapter one. Pretty excited about this one, actually. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was a great man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Nice. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. Everything he has is in your hand, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Even though he has every fucking right to, See, this is this is this is the part that I don't get. It's not it's not a triumph of faith over the unfaithful. It's not a, a triumph of God's chosen people over heathens. It's not an opportunity to persevere in the face of trial. It is the murder of his children, the destruction of his home, and the theft of his livelihood at a prompting by Satan. And God just goes for it to prove one man's worth to Satan. The Lord does this to his loving servant. So what does he do to the rest of us who are not as loving and faithful as Job? One of my favorite films is the movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves, which is based on a comic book. He was a teenage suicide and uh, fights demons in order to win his way back into heaven. And the movie is incredible. And I've only read a couple of the comic books. Um, But there is a scene where Constantine is explaining to a detective that he is helping in the movie that it's a balance. It's good and it's evil. And there are these pushes that Satan and the Lord and the angels and the the demons are, are able to do. No sort of direct influence, just suggestion. And sort of the fate of the world is is dependent on this balance and Constantine in the movie says he's a kid with an ant farm like there's no there's no divine presence there's no guidance there's no watching over you it's just he's he created us and is letting us run completely wild and then every so often to prove our worth in the eyes of Satan he kills our sheep and our kids And he lets his own son be sacrificed for us. So we can keep getting tortured by him? I don't know. Such a fucking bummer. He wasn't even in Esther. God didn't even do anything. She was just Jewish. Not just Jewish, but you know what I mean. And this loyal servant, Job, couldn't even be left alone. Chapter 2, Job's second test. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Shut the fuck up. That sucks. That sucks. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with terrible sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? 
curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God? Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Heliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namachite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust in their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word for him, said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may darkness, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of God be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide from my eyes, to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were the knees, why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth, who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There was a wicked cease from turmoil, and there was the weary art, and there the weary art rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food, my groans pour out like water. What I fear has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your word, words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a moral be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? I say yes and no. If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dark and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up? 
so that they die without wisdom. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consumes his harvest, taking it even from among thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. But if it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my curse before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water upon the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plan of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in daytime at noon. They grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful, so the poor have hope. And justice shuts its mouth. Blessed is the man who God cre Blessed is the man who God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you, and seven no harm will befall you. In famine he will ransom you from death, and in battle from the stroke of the sword. And you will be protected from the lash of the tongue, and need not fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine, and need not fear the beasts of the earth. For you have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the wild animals will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is secure, and you will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. You will know that your children will be many, and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like she's gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true, so hear it, and apply it to yourself. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed, and all my misery be placed on the scales. It would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetus. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should still hope? What prospects that I should be patient? Do I have the strength of stone? Is my flesh bronze? Do I have any power to help myself now that success has been driven from me? A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty, but my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow. But that cease to flow in the dry seasons, and in the heat vanish from their channels. Caravans turn aside from their routes. They go into the wasteland and perish. The caravans of Tima look for water. The traveling merchants of Sheba look in hope. They are distressed because they have been confident. They arrive there only to be disappointed. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Have I ever said, give something on my behalf? Pay a ransom for me from your wealth. Deliver me from the hand of the enemy. Ransom me from the clutches of the ruthless teach me and i will be quiet show me where i have been wrong how painful are honest words but what do your arguments prove do you mean to correct what i say and treat the words of a despairing mantis wind you would even cast lots for the fatherless and barter away your friend but now be so kind as to look at me would i lie to your face relent do not be unjust reconsider for my integrity is at stake is there any wickedness on my lips can my mouth not discern malice? 
Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think how long before I get up. The night drags on, and I toss till dawn. My body is closed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. Remember, O oh God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. The eyes that now sees me will see me no longer. You will look for me, but I will be no more. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the monster of the deep that you put me under God? That you put me under guard when I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint. Even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. When I think my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, even then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions, so that I prefer strangling and death rather than this body of mine. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me? Or let me alone for an instant. If I have sinned, what I have done to you, a watcher of men, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, and I will be no more. Oh, I think I'm going to go on stop there uh, then it's Job chapter 7 and we'll pick up in the middle of this conversation um, with um, Job chapter 9 uh, let go and let God 